While you're having a seat, let me introduce myself. My name is Adam Young, and I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church in Parker, and uh, honored and excited that you chose to be with us to worship this morning. Um, when you walked in, you were handed what we call a worship guide, um, and there's a few things that I want to point out about it to you, whether you come every week or you're a guest. The first one is on the back side is a place for you to take notes. If you encounter thoughts or scriptures or ideas um, during the message today, uh, I want you to encourage you to write those down for further study, or maybe you have a question and uh, that you want to ask of me or someone else or something that you just want to research later on on your own. Uh, that's a great way to record that and, and not forget it. Also, what you'll notice on the front of the worship guide uh, is a new picture because today we start uh, week one of a new series called So Help Me God. Now really, this new series is almost like an extension of the one we just finished. Um, we spent three weeks uh, in a series we called Dysfunction, uh, and really that was based around the dysfunction that we experience in our relationships. And so we talked about hypocrisy and criticism, and we talked about seeking reconciliation, things that pertain to our relationships, and really this series uh, that we've called So Help Me God is it an extension of that previous series, but this goes beyond just our relationships and looking for um, finding freedom and hope in other areas of our lives, not just our relationships. And um, just while we're on this kind of topic before we really dive in this morning, uh, let me tell you a little bit about where we're going over the coming weeks. Um, inside the worship guide is a schedule of the next four weeks and the topics we'll be covering. Uh, but here's what I want you to also know, um, that when we finish this series, we're going to start um, a, a couple weeks together uh, with a vision series about who and what is Element Church. Um, for those who have not been here very long, uh, you probably have a lot of questions about what is Element Church? Why do you exist? What are you about? Um, why did you choose the name Element? Things like those. If you've been here for a really, really, really long time, you may have an answer to some of those questions, um, but not all of those, and that's because a lot of the information surrounding the idea of Element Church is new and in a couple of weeks we'll talk a little bit about our story and how we got to where we are today but I want you to know that that's coming up that we're going to spend four weeks talking about finding freedom in our lives um, beyond just our relationships which we've already talked about and then we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about really the nuts and bolts of who is Element Church why do we exist what are we trying to do here and where are we going moving forward so I want you to know that that's coming up. So let me pray for our time together, for you and for me, and then we're going to dive in this morning. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to come to worship with our thoughts, our voices, our minds, our hearts, uh, our attention. And Lord, I just pray that everything that uh, is said and implied over these coming moments is something that brings you great glory and honor, uh, and that today we will all be encouraged. We all wrestle uh, with doubts and questions, and I pray that today we would find comfort and that you're a God who uh, not only has the answers but is not afraid to be questioned. Lord, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Do me a favor, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, open up your Bibles, your Bible app on your phone or tablet, or if you want um, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you use one of our Bibles, the page numbers will be up on the screen to help you find your way a little bit easier. If you don't have a Bible or you don't like the one you own, feel free to keep one of ours as our gift to you. So Luke chapter 1. And today we're going to talk about freedom from doubt. Um, you know, this phrase, so help me God, is something I think 
we've all either said or thought many, many different times um, in just complete desperation or maybe frustration or anger um, when we feel like we're at the end of our rope. And if we were all honest, which don't worry because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but if we were all honest, I think we would all say that we've had times where we've seriously doubted our faith. Or maybe there were things that we were taught in church um, that we really wrestled with, or maybe we just had big life questions, something pertaining to God, or eternity, or salvation, or truth, that we really wrestled with. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, and we're going to begin our journey in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Luke 1, starting in verse 1. And so Luke is the author here, and This is how he begins this account of the life of Christ. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here's what Luke says to us right from the get-go. First of all, Luke has full acknowledgement that he's not the first one to write about Christ. And so he's even telling his audience, which in this instance, he gives us a name, Theophilus, and we don't know anything else about this guy from history. Um, We can make a few assumptions based on uh, the address that Paul gives in his name, but we're going to go into that today. Um, But this man, Theophilus, is also aware that other people have written about Christ. About the the ministry and the life and the influence, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so Luke says, hey, just like others have endeavored to do this same thing, I'm going to do it as well. He tells us a few other things. Just as though those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So here's what else Luke tells us. I was not a disciple of Christ. I was not an eyewitness of Jesus. And you see, some of the gospel accounts that we have of the life of Christ are from those who followed him day in and day out. Some of them are not. Matthew and John, we know, were very close followers and disciples of Christ. Mark, we know, was not, but... He was an apprentice under Peter, and a lot of his information comes from Peter. Luke, we know, was somewhat of an apprentice under Paul. We know a lot about Luke, but not much from his own admission here, um, because Luke is writing this account about Christ. He's not writing it about himself. Um, What we do know is we know Luke was a medical doctor. Um, We know that he was a contemporary of Paul and went on a lot of missionary journeys with Paul and then Luke one day decides maybe Theophilus asked him to do it maybe he just did it on under his own desire but decides I'm going to also write an orderly account of the things that have happened in the life of Christ and so Luke who's not shy or unfamiliar with research and writing as a doctor is going to put an orderly account by talking to eyewitnesses collecting stories of what the ministry and the life of Christ was like. But here's what I find interesting too. At the very end that he writes 
for his audience, for the person or group that he's writing this letter to, he says this, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I think if Luke were standing on this stage this morning, I think his invitation to all of us would be, skeptics are welcome. The fact that you're sitting in this room today probably indicates, maybe you know a lot, maybe you know very little, but indicates that all of us have probably been taught something about Jesus. And maybe even that something is skewed and wrong, but the fact that you're sitting here this morning tells me that you probably know something about him and his life and ministry, but maybe you want to know more. Maybe you're not sure if what you do know is correct, or maybe you're not sure how to put uh, some wrap your understanding around the information that you know. And I think Luke would say the same thing to us that he would say to Theophilus is that skeptics are welcome. Those who have questions are welcome. Those who have doubts are welcome. Those who want to know more or aren't sure are welcome. I think a lot of times in church, we've, if you have a lot of experience in church, we've got this experience that um, maybe questions aren't permissible. Like maybe you're just supposed to sit back and just agree with everything that's said. And if you don't agree with everything that's said, just keep your mouth shut because it's not, this isn't an appropriate place to ask questions. This isn't an appropriate place to have doubts. And I think Luke would counteract that and say, no, if you want to know more, if you're not sure, if you have doubts or questions or uncertainties, you're welcome here. And not only would Luke say that, um, as a church, we say that. That if you want to know more, if you want to wrestle with the truth, if you want to wrestle with your faith and you want to go deeper and you want to understand it in a better way and you want it to not, not just listen to somebody else tell you what to believe, but you want to wrestle with it so you can believe it for yourself, then you're welcome this morning. Now here's what's really interesting, okay? If you do this, if you're in school and you do this, you're going to get a bad grade on your paper. But here's what Luke does, okay? I mean, I'm not judging. This is the Bible, but I'm just saying it's just... Most of us wouldn't do this if we were writing a paper or book. So here's what Luke's going to do. And he sets us up, right? I want to give you information. I'm going to put an orderly account of all these things that have happened, primarily concerning Christ, so that you can have certainty about what people have told you, so that you can have confidence in what you believe. Now, what would you expect to come next? Who, Who is he going to start talking about? Well, if the whole premise of his letter or his book is about Christ, you would expect Christ to be the person he introduces next, right? Luke does something interesting here, and the reason he does it is because it's a common literary device that they would have used in the ancient world. But here, the first thing that he does, after he sets us all up, is he starts talking about somebody else. He starts introducing another guy who becomes important to the story, even though he's not the main character. And immediately, to begin the whole account, after all the research that he's done, as he's ready to put this orderly account together, he begins with the birth of John the Baptist. Um, Now, we're going to talk about John the Baptist today. 
but I need you to turn over to Luke 7. So if you have your Bible open, you just have to flip a couple pages. Now, a lot has happened between chapters 1 and chapter 7. I'm going to summarize it for you because we'd all like to eat lunch before midnight. So, Luke 1 through 7, let me tell you a little bit about John the Baptist and his life, and then we're going to look at something in chapter 7 in just a moment. Uh, There are two individuals that are married, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they desperately wanted children for many, 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 many years. Unfortunately, Elizabeth was barren. She could not have children. To make matters worse, she's now very old. The Bible uses a little more politeness. It says very well advanced in years, okay? Um, But she is old now. So even if she used to be able to have kids, she's long beyond that point now. Um, And so she's got two strikes against her, and both her and her husband, Zechariah, who's a priest, are just a little heartbroken, almost feeling like something is missing, because they, all, they always desperately wanted children but could never have them, and prayed passionately for, the, for a child. Well, Zechariah, who's a priest, now back in this time, there were hundreds and hundreds of priests, and they would actually rotate duties. It just so happened that one day, it's Zechariah's turn to go inside the temple to, to, do some, to give some offerings at the altar. He walks in, and an angel appears. Now, we've talked enough about angels here um, that hopefully you can recognize what his first response is going to be. As soon as Zechariah sees the angel, he's afraid. He thinks, because you've got you to gotta realize, there were very, 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 very strict and special rules that you as a priest had to follow before you were allowed to go in the temple. If you didn't, it could be a death sentence for you. If you chose to go inside the temple in an inappropriate manner, if you didn't take the rules seriously, if you didn't think it was a big big deal, then when you walk in, if you're sinful, if you have not taken care of your sin, and they had a lot of rituals that they had to follow back then, you could die. They would actually tie a rope at certain times of the year when priests would do certain things and go into certain parts of the temple. They would tie a rope around a guy's waist just in case he didn't make it. So the other priest could pull him back out and they wouldn't have to risk going in. All right? So Zechariah goes into the temple and an angel appears. And his first thought is, oops, I didn't do something right. As soon as he sees the angel, he thinks, I'm a dead man. But the angel comes with good news and tells Zechariah to not be afraid, but that God has heard his prayer and Elizabeth's prayer and that God is going to give them a child. Um, And on top of announcing the birth of John, the angel tells Zechariah that he's going to have an incredible, powerful ministry. And all of it comes true. Uh, Elizabeth gets pregnant, gives birth to John, uh, and John has an incredible, incredible ministry. He travels the wilderness preaching and baptizing people, which is why we call him John the Baptist. Um, We think of baptism as a particularly Christian ritual, which uh, it is pretty unique to Christians. But back in this time, um, a lot of times they would baptize people who wanted to kind of have a renewing moment in their faith. Um, Or if you were an outsider and you wanted to join the Jewish ranks, um, a lot of times they would do baptism as an initiation rite to get in. 
And so John would go out preaching, and he was a harsh preacher, and living in the wilderness, and he would go to the the Jordan River, and people would follow him, and he would baptize them as kind of a spiritual uh, renewal act. Well, John was very, very popular. He had thousands of followers um, at different times in his ministry, and people really loved him. He was a really popular guy, kind of weird, all right, because he lived in the wild, and he ate weird things, and he dressed weird, but he was really cool. So he's like the guy that um, you know, you, you wanted to be associated with, you may not invite him to your house, but you wanted people to know you uh, knew John the Baptist, all right? So um, he was a really, really popular guy. And one day, as he's in the Jordan River baptizing people, Jesus comes. And Jesus walks out into the middle of the river and tells John, I want you to baptize me. Now, John does the same thing all of us would do. Like, whoa, Jesus. I'm pretty sure you got this backwards. I think you should be baptizing me. There's no way I'm going to baptize you. Like, that doesn't make sense. And Jesus basically said, no, I'm God. You're going to do what I say. And so John did. But um, so so Jesus, and and we'll teach on the baptism of Jesus another time and why Jesus did that. But, But here in the Jordan River, John baptizes Jesus before the crowd. Jesus did this publicly for a reason. And And then the Bible tells us in that moment that the skies opened up and that God's audible voice was heard as soon as Jesus came up out of the water saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now just think about, just think about being John the Baptist for a moment. Like how awesome of of a one-upper story do you have for people, right? Like, like, first of all, an angel showed up to announce your birth to your 100-year-old mom. So you got to be thinking, I'm pretty special, right? Like, I, God really likes me, all right? Because this whole thing doesn't happen without him. Second of all, the angel even tells people, I'm going to have an important ministry, and everybody loves me. People come all the time to see me teach and to come be baptized by me and the river. And on top of that, how many people can say they've heard God's literal voice. Uh, if you're John the Baptist, you've got to be thinking, I mean, come on, right? Like if you're at a party and you're telling a great story, like John always has the one-upper, right? He always trumps your stories. Like, yeah, an angel announced my birth. Who announced yours, right? Like that always trumps any story. So John has an incredible life and ministry, but all of a sudden he finds his life in a little bit of a predicament. You see, I told you John was a harsh preacher. He was really harsh. And he never held back, uh, not only from the crowds, but he would call people out by name. You don't want John to come preach at your church. He'll call you out by name and tell people what you're doing wrong. Uh, John was a really harsh preacher, and there was a ruler, a tetrarch, meaning uh, a guy who ruled on behalf of Rome in this area, uh, named Herod. Herod Archelaus, and he was certifiably crazy. If Herod were alive today, he gets his own two-hour special on the Jerry Springer show. Um, is, that, is that show even around anymore? They still do? They do? That's sad. All right, so he gets his own two-hour special back when it was kind of a cool show. And, yeah, anyway, so, all right, so Herod has a very public, very active affair going on with his brother's wife. 
Everybody knows it. And he doesn't even try to hide it. Herod is very publicly sexually attracted to his young teenage niece. All right, Herod is crazy. Herod has literally at his own hands killed thousands of innocent people. Eventually, as a matter of fact, Rome gets so tired of him that they get rid of him because they can't stand him. He's supposed to rule on behalf of Rome, but even the Roman Empire thought this guy is nuts. But John begins preaching and and talking about the sin of Herod and starts calling out the sin of him and his leadership and his household. And as a result, Herod has him arrested. So as we pick up the story in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist finds himself sitting in a dungeon awaiting his possible verdict. I mean, there's not going to be a trial. It's just whatever Herod's going to do. Actually, Herod wanted to kill this guy a long time ago. The problem is everybody loves John the Baptist. The public loves him. And he realizes it's going to be a PR nightmare if he ends up murdering John the Baptist. So he just keeps him in a dungeon. He keeps him in prison so that he doesn't have to kill him, but he also doesn't have to let him go. And he's still trying to decide what to do. And that's where we pick up our story in Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Here we go. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. It's going to be on the screen for you. If you'd like the disciples of John. So these are men who uh, who spent a lot of time following John, learning from him, helping him in his ministry, um, helping take care of when large crowds would come to see John. You know, they'd help kind of try to keep order. These are men who are always trying to help John and, and serve and minister alongside him. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, what did they report? Well, if we had read over the previous chapters that we summarized, we'll realize that the disciples of John are bringing John a report, he's in prison, of what Jesus is doing. They're going to tell him about what Jesus has been teaching and doing and all the ministry and miracles and um, all the awesome stuff that we think of when we think of the life of Christ. They've just reported to John, this is what's going on. And John, now verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You see, when um, the angel proclaimed to Zechariah the ministry of John the Baptist, and as John grew and grew into his ministry... The ministry that God had set aside for John was that of preparing the way for the Savior. It was John's job to get the world, and most notably that region of the world, ready for the coming of the Messiah, the promised Savior, the anointed one that the Jews had been waiting hundreds and even thousands of years for. And that was John's job, and that's why he went throughout the wilderness and from town to town proclaiming for people to repent Get back right with God because he was trying to get the people prepared for the one who was to follow him. And that's why he baptized people. It's sort of a spiritual renewal act so that they would be prepared and their, their hearts and their minds would be right when they encountered Christ to be able to follow him. The first time John ever sees Jesus, he tells his disciples, there walks one of whom's, whose sandals I'm even unworthy to tie. The whole point of John's ministry was to prepare 
the way for Jesus. And the entire nation had been waiting for the anointed Savior that God had promised thousands of years before to send. And John sends this question to Jesus. Are you the one? Or should we wait for another? John sends question. Did we get it right or did we get it wrong? That's a pretty bold question. Imagine John sitting in a dungeon. And the questions that maybe Gus must be going through his mind. All right, God. I think you missed something here because this is not how it was supposed to go. God, I don't know. Did you forget you sent an angel to announce my birth? God, did you forget about all the ministry and the impact that I've had? Did you forget about the fact that even people in Caesar's own household know who I am and what I've been teaching? God, did you miss something? Because it doesn't seem like this is how it should end. It doesn't seem like this is how the life of an anointed one that you set aside to prepare the way for Jesus This is not a part of the plan. Have you ever felt that way? You ever thought to yourself, did God miss something? Because I don't see how this is supposed to be a part of the plan. I don't see how this one fits into the grand scheme of things. I get it. He sees all. He knows all. He's smarter than me. But I just, seems like he might have missed something on this one. I mean, I've, I've been doing right. I've been doing good. I've been doing what I am supposed to be. I, how did my life get here? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like this should fit into the script. And John, sitting in the dungeon, wondering what's going to happen with him, sends word to Jesus. Are you the one, or should we wait for another did I prepare the, the people for you, or did I prepare them for the wrong one? So his disciples go, and they asked, they, they're going to deliver the message. Verse 20, and when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So these disciples come to Jesus and they say, here's the message from John. Are you it? Can you confirm for us? Can you give us some kind of sign? Can you give us some kind of message? How do we know that you're really the one that we've been waiting for? And notice, even immediately, Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He basically just says to the disciples, come come with me. And he goes about doing what he's already been doing. About what's been happening day in and day out from chapters 1 through 7. And he heals people who are sick. And he restores sight to people who are blind. And he takes away plagues and disease from those who are sick. And after doing all of this and having the disciples of John come watch... Then he gives him an answer, and he said this in verse 22, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Now he's 
So they, they can tell them what they've seen. They just watch Jesus do it. Now this is the hearing part. He's going to give them the message. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, here's what you have to understand about people living in this time, especially well, for those who were Jews. They, God had given the promise of a Savior long, long, long ago. And they went through periods of misunderstanding what that was going to look like. Um, for a long time, it was thought of that it's going to come in the form of God's blessings. That's, God's going to fulfill His promise through a series of, and a set of blessings. And so they thought, man, the land we own, the, the success in battle that we have, the fruit from our crops, that's God's blessing. That's Him fulfilling the promise. And, and when all that was stripped away from them, in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians conquer about three quarters of the nation. And then two centuries, a century and a half later, the Babylonians come and finish off what the Assyrians left for them, and so you're sitting there, and in the late fifth century, early sixth century, going, "Wow, maybe I misunderstood what the blessing of God was. Maybe we need to rethink this." And as God continued to reveal more of Himself and His plan, and they understood it in a different light that God's going to send a Messiah to be the blessing. A blessing to the nation of Israel, but also to the, a blessing to the rest of the world. And so for 500 years, the Jews are mostly without land, mostly without prosperity, mostly without leadership, mostly without an army, desperately waiting a promised Messiah. And so in angst, and in their hope, they would reflect on teachings about what it would be like when this Messiah would come. When the times got tough, they would go back and read these scriptures over and over and over about what it will be like when the Messiah, when the anointed, when the promised one comes. In the Old Testament, especially the latter half of it, is full of promises and prophecies about what it will be like. And the book called Isaiah is full of a lot of them. So if you were a Jew living in this time, you would have been very, very, very familiar with all of these teachings about what it'll be like. And specifically, they talk about the deaf hearing and the blind seeing and the lame walking and those with diseases finding healing. And these same Promises are repeated over and over and over and over. But here's what you and I miss really easily. In Isaiah 42, there's another list that the blind will receive sight, things will happen, and here's, here's how that list ends. And every Jew, and especially John the Baptist, would have known it. And the prisoners will be set free. And the prisoners will be set free. So the disciples come back from talking and spending time with Jesus. And they come to John and they say, okay, 
we told him, we asked him the question, and here's what he did. He just, we asked him the question, and he didn't even answer right away. We just walked around for hours, and he just healed people and gave the blind sight, and the deaf could hear, and those with diseases were, were healed, and, and, and we walked around for hours, and then he stopped, and he said, go and tell John what you've just seen and heard. And then this is what he said. This is what Jesus said to us. The blind will receive sight. You know, John's going, okay, check. The lame walk. Yeah, yeah, that was promised. Check. The blind will receive their sight. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, check. And the deaf hear. Yep, check. The poor have good news preached to them. Yep, yep, check. And then silence. You can almost imagine John going, okay, wait, there should have been one more, right? Wait, wait, what else did he say? And the disciples are going, that was, that was it. That he did all those things and then he told us to tell you. And that's, that's what we brought back to you. And he's, no, wait, there was, don't you remember? There should have been, there should have been one more, right? No, John, that was, that was it. It's easy for us to miss, but here's the message that Jesus just sent to John. I am the one. And you're going to die in prison. And the moment John received word back from Jesus, he knew what the message was. But verse 23 is so key. Because this is the end of what Jesus actually told the disciples. We stopped before that a minute ago. And this is what he says. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If you have the NIV open, it probably says something along the lines of, and blessed is the one who does not stumble upon me. And that word stumble or offend here literally means to sin and disappointment and anger. Jesus just told John, I am the one. You're going to die in prison. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by my truth. That's exactly what happened. It was just a matter of days or weeks after this event took place. That Herod had a big birthday party for himself. And he threw quite the party. Everybody was pretty hammered. Moving towards the end of it. Lots of dancing going on. And then this young teenage niece that Herod was so attracted to. Comes out and does a strip tease for him. And he gets so excited that he tells her. You tell me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. She doesn't know what to say. She's just a young girl. So she goes to her mom and she says, what do I want? And the mom who hated John the Baptist as much if not more than Herod said, you tell your uncle you want John's head on a plate. So she does. And he does. Now, 
that message, that last statement made to John by Jesus is key to, to understanding the whole part of this story. And then we're going we're gonna to get to the conclusion here in just a minute. You see, in that moment of receiving the answer, John had to make a decision. Is Jesus enough for me because of who he is? Or is he only as valuable as what he can do for me? Because Jesus just sent the word to him. I'm exactly the one you are waiting for. But I'm not setting you free today. And John had the decision to make. Will I only be faithful and follow Christ so long as he does what's good, what I want him to do? Because up until that point, John had had a pretty awesome life. Now granted, he lived in the wild and he was a little bit homeless, but he had an incredible ministry and an awesome story. And he had more trump cards than any one of us. God was very present in his life and ministry. And had been very good and had blessed him in many ways. And John had to make a decision. What will Jesus be to me? Because he'll either be my strong and sturdy foundation or he'll be my stumbling block. Either I can build every part of my life on who he is and it doesn't matter whether he does what I want him to do or not. He doesn't owe me anything. Just who he is is enough for me. Or am I going to hold up genie, uh, Jesus as a genie in a bottle to me that I'll like him so long as he does what I want? I'll do a couple religious things and then he owes me. And as soon as I don't get what I think I'm owed, well then I don't know if I have much use for him anymore. Now, let's finish this story. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And I don't know, just thinking about all that we've talked about today, what Jesus is now about to say totally blows my mind. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So he's talking to the crowd. These are people who all have experience. They've listened to John teach. They, they might have even been baptized by him. They've all been impacted by his ministry and probably all of them really like John. And Jesus starts questioning the crowd. Why did you go see him? What was it that drew you into the wilderness to go listen and follow John? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are king, in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? He starts asking them. It wasn't because he would, John was rich that you thought maybe you could go and get a piece of what he had. He didn't have anything to offer you. A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, 
I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. It doesn't seem that Jesus was too intimidated by John's question, does it? I mean, if I'm Jesus, and I'm most certainly not, but if I'm Jesus, and I get that question from John's disciples, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? After all that I've done for you, after all you've seen and experienced in your life, you know God's hand is on your life, and you have the audacity to question me. That's what I'm thinking. Jesus gives his response to the disciples of John, and they go back to give John the news. And then he looks at the crowd and starts questioning them. What made you go see him? What drew you to the wilderness? It wasn't, wasn't his clothes. It wasn't his money. What made you go out there? And here's his response. It's because the scriptures foretold of a man like that. And I tell you this, of any man born of a woman, no one will ever be greater than that man. It doesn't seem like this moment of doubt and questioning by John intimidated Jesus at all. That it made Jesus think less of him. That it made him question whether John was really that important or made him question about whether John had really fulfilled his duty and followed his calling. And I think it also gives us an insight into quite possibly how John responded when he received the news. In a moment of weakness, John asked a question. And Jesus in no way was intimidated by that. And when he got his answer, he knew. Jesus is the one. But it's not about whether or not I get what I want. I wonder how many of us in here would respond positively if Jesus said the same to us. I am. I am God. I am the one. I am the Savior. I am the only one who can save you. But don't ask me to be your genie in a bottle. I do bless people. I do miraculous things. But if you only want me for what I can do for you, then I'll just be a stumbling block when I don't, when I don't do what you want. Or I can be your sure foundation because who I am is enough. See, we titled this message, Overcoming Doubt. Maybe even some of you thought we'd give a three or four or five or seven step process to get rid of doubt in your life. And here's my encouragement. If you've got doubts, 
and you investigate them. You got questions, then you ask. You're wrestling with something, then wrestle with it. You don't hide. But you press into them because Jesus is big enough to handle your questions. God is big enough to handle your doubts. It doesn't do you or anyone else any good to pretend like they don't exist or to hide from them or to avoid them. Jesus is plenty big enough and secure enough to handle your questions. He is not intimidated by your doubts or concerns. The key is, what do you expect from him? Because if you expect him to fulfill all your little wishes, he'll become a stumbling block to you. But if who he is is enough, then no matter what answer you get, no matter how long it takes you to wrestle and to search and to fight for it, he will always be enough for you. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning, and I don't think there's any doubt that all of us, whether now or at some point, have wrestled with real honest questions about you and uh, your word. And Lord, I pray that in the most respectful manner, we would ask those questions, press into you, We'd seek answers from you. But in this moment, I, I hope that you give us the courage to do some self-examination about what's in our hearts and about really what matters most to us. I want you to keep your eyes closed for just a moment. The issue this morning is not so much whether you have questions or what kind of questions they are. Although for those that have them, my encouragement is still the same, that you press into them, that you search, that you find the answers. Some of the most powerful moments in my personal spiritual journey have been when I wouldn't just settle for the status quo answer, but I'd seek the truth for myself. I'd dive into the Bible looking for answers. I would get on my knees and pray. I would spend time with others asking questions, looking for help. And it's in those moments when I would really press into my questions that have been some of the richest and greatest moments of my spiritual journey when unexpectedly I got to see God in a new light or I learned something new about His ways or His character. The question this morning really is, is the person of Jesus enough for you? Or is it really just his works that you were after? If the answer to your question or your 
your petition is no, is Jesus still enough for you? And if he's not, then I would say you probably have a misunderstanding of who he really is. Because if all he is is a good teacher, then no, he's not enough. If all he is is a, an ancient philosopher, then no, he's not enough. He's just a good man who did a lot of good things. If he's just a great historical figure, if he's just one of many ways, then he's not enough. He's enough because he's God. He's enough because our sin required punishment and out of love He chose to take on the punishment for us. He's enough because death rules over us all, but He conquered death. He's he's not enough because of what he might do for you. He's enough because what he's already done. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe what you need to do is it's not a it's not a question about the Bible or something you've been taught. Really what you wrestle with is who is Jesus? My prayer and encouragement is that you press into that question, that you, that you seek Him. The Bible says when we seek Him with all of our hearts, we will find Him. That's a promise. And that if you seek Him to know more about Him, He'll reveal Himself to you. Lord, I ask that you continue to move in these moments. I pray that you'd give us just gut level honesty to be real with ourselves about about what we believe about you and what we hold most dear pray that you'd give us the courage to seek the answers to our questions and and have the courage to tell somebody maybe somebody else can help us find the answer or be an encouragement to us but that we wouldn't hide from them we wouldn't bottle them up but we'd seek the truth because you are truth and that you'd bring freedom to our lives a freedom a weight off our shoulders knowing that you're not scared of our questions that you don't think less of us because of our issues that long before we ever had these questions or issues you died for us that you chose to exemplify your love on the cross and to exemplify your power by raising from the tomb. This morning as we sing another song or two, I pray that what we sing would be a reflection of what's in our heart. For those of us who take communion, it would be a representation of who you are in our lives and that you would move in our minds and our hearts 
this morning.